Welcome to the Building Confidence podcast. This is part two of a two-part episode of how corporates are responding to climate risks and exposures. These podcasts are brought to you by KPMG, where we explore a range of issues which impact on stakeholder confidence in governance, corporate reporting and audit. I'm Michelle Hinchliffe and I'm your host for today. Now in part one, we examined the progress made during COP26 and covered some notable successes and shortcomings. We also discussed the size of the climate challenges and what companies need to consider to address some of the announcements made. In part two, we'll continue the discussion with Simon Henry, an independent non-executive director, and Simon Verley, our vice chair and head of energy and natural resources at KPMG in the UK. We're going to focus on the reporting landscape, explore industry examples of good practice, and what questions board members should be asking of management. So let's kick off. So Simon Verley, turning to you, we in uh, part one, we discussed a lot around uh, what uh, businesses will be required to do, but they also need to be able to measure and disclose their climate risk exposure. Now the alphabet soup is something we hear often when it comes to understanding the various reporting frameworks related to climate risk. Can you help unravel some of this mystery? What do these frameworks mean um, and what should it, and what do they mean for businesses? What do they need to address? Yeah, thanks, Michelle. Uh, look, I think the main message I want to give is that the disclosure rules are going to get tougher and they're going to get broader in scope over the next few years for pretty much every company in Britain. And so the days of the green washing or as I called it earlier the green wishing uh you know just set a target and hope it all goes away are, are basically receding I mean we need to move move beyond that now I'm going to just um ask ask the listeners just to take a deep breath while I run through some of the alphabet soup that you referred to Michelle because there's a lot happening and they're all related all of these disclosure requirements so the UK Green Finance Roadmap pretty much sets out the timetable about how this will evolve, and that was published just before COP. Um, I'm going to start with the so-called Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosures, TCFD, which I know a number of you will have heard about, which applies to financial institutions and premium listed companies this year. And that requires companies to basically set out their plans for reducing emissions on a scope one, two and three basis and set out the implications of different climate change scenarios on their business. And those TCFD requirements are going to be rolled out to all companies by 2025. Now, the government here in the UK has now said that all companies are going to also have to set out net zero transition plans by 2023. So that's a step beyond what TCFD asks you to do. So how does your company contribute in terms of the transition to net zero? And then uh, beyond climate, there's going to be an even broader set of requirements coming in called the new sustainability disclosure requirements or SDR for short, which will come in on a comply or explain basis from 2023. Uh, and that'll cover a range of metrics, not just carbon, so other things like biodiversity, water use, for example. Uh, and 
Finally, in the UK context, we've got the green taxonomy, uh, which also comes in in 2023, which require, includes requirements for the disclosure of the percentage of capital expenditure or capital products going towards green activities. Now, those are just the UK rules. Uh, you've then got, if you've got an international business, um, what is going to come out of the new International Sustainability Standards Board or ISSB, uh, which is due to come up with some global reporting standards for sustainability disclosures by the end of 2022 for implementation in 2023. So this alphabet soup is growing. It's getting more complicated. It's getting broader in scope. And my advice to companies is really try to get ahead of it, try and leapfrog it, try and think about where you want to be in five years and work back uh, so that you're not just continually playing catch up. Great. So Simon, I'm going to take you back to the first episode and ask you to explain to our listeners scope one, two and three. So from what you've just explained then around TCFD requirements, it sounds as though companies are going to have to rely upon other companies in order to get their um, their scope three emissions. So can you just elaborate on that? Because that creates a lot of uh, interdependence in the in the sector. A really, really important point. I'm glad you've raised that, Michelle, because essentially, even if you're not a premium listed company at the moment, you're a smaller player, maybe you're in the supply chain of a larger company, you're going to be affected by TCFD because the larger company is going to ask you about your carbon footprint so that they can make their own disclosures. And I think that's a really important point for the businesses listening into this call to understand. That's why I say this is going to affect every business whether it's large or small, whether you're carbon intensive or not. You might think this is just for the bigger players. It's not because of that supply chain uh, point uh, and because it's going to roll out to all companies uh, over time by 2025, as I say. So, yeah, really glad you made that point because it's it means it's going to come. It's effective. It's going to become sooner rather than later. So, so Simon Henry, maybe if I turn to you and um, on the basis that it's going to impact all companies and and in part one, we spoke a bit around financing or, or capital, and I guess that's going to apply to every company. So somehow this is going to touch uh, touch on on them. Um, it sounds quite difficult. So uh, for for companies to be able to work work this out. So. Um, what, what would your advice be to uh, to businesses in how they can best respond to these reporting requirements, uh, particularly when it sounds so challenging? Well, we talked previously about the importance of the board and the executive understanding the business model and the scenarios, but there are three areas that they then need to, to plug into that. The first is disclosure, which Simon has just talked about. Then the metrics themselves and this is obviously across the whole of the esg agenda going to be much greater than just climate change but we're, we'll stick to climate change here and then there's the engagement process in terms of the interested parties and particularly those to whom it will make a difference in terms of whether they're prepared to provide finance to the company in either equity or debt form so importantly disclosure is a an obligation for everybody. Part of that disclosure is measurement. Scope one, scope two, scope three, same simple. It's actually almost impossible to measure carbon dioxide directly. Um, it isn't cash in a bank. So 
in the first instance, there are a lot of estimates, a lot of uh, science basis being used, but to actually find and measure a, a methane leakage requires drone technology and quite some investment, shall we say, to, to be able to precisely identify where that uh, emission is from and what needs to be done to reduce. Uh, I, I'll just very briefly just mention the challenge in the, the, the banking industry when I was on the board of a bank. In practice, the bank was the largest financier of vehicle fleets in, in the UK, other than the major car companies, it was also the largest mortgage provider. How do you assess the carbon footprint of the buildings, commercial real estate as well, but private mortgages, uh, in any way other than an average for that type of property? How do you assess the emissions of a transport fleet in anything other than the average? So. You can do this, but then you say, well, if I've improved efficiency, how do I then measure that? So you have to go through that discussion. You have to fully understand implications of the actions you could take and what that impact would have on the particular metrics. Uh, and similarly, if I don't do this, what is the risk that something uh, will come back in terms of the metrics that I then use in engagement? The actual coming together of ISSB or, or the SASB American version. TCFD is a very well thought through, coherent set of requirements, starting with strategy, risks, the governance within the company. It ends with metrics and a single, coherent, consistent expectation about what gets measured, how it gets measured, and how you link actions taken with outcomes will be a significant contributor to getting good outcomes here. But companies, I absolutely agree, need to get ahead of this. Otherwise, there's a real danger that we become victims of not just an alphabet soup of regulatory bodies, but a multiplicity of requirements and metrics that make no sense, are not consistent and are not coherent as a whole about actual effective outcomes short term and, and longer term. Thank you, Sam. So great points in terms of, uh, I guess, linking the strategy and then the three key areas you mentioned, disclosure, metrics, engagement, really flowing flowing from that. Simon Burley, I'm going to ask you a question in terms of, I guess, the practicalities of this. And, and Simon's already sent out a, a, some really good examples of how difficult it is um, in terms of the, the estimates. So, so, so what should companies companies be doing um, where they're sitting there saying, look, I just don't, I don't know how to, to, to estimate this. Or even I estimated it last year and I think I got it wrong because understanding science moves on and I'm going to come up with a different answer this year and perhaps next year I'm going to refine this a little bit better. And, and all of these, uh, all of the targets are set as, you know, reductions from a point in time. So if the estimates keep changing, that to me sounds quite challenging. So that's quite a number of areas I've just thrown at you. Maybe if you could help um, help with some practical issue, uh, uh, advice in terms of how companies should be dealing with this. I think the first thing I want to say, Michelle, is I think companies should just take heart from the fact that everybody's on this journey together. And that, by the way, includes us at KPMG as we have to revise all our audit practices, all our valuation practices to incorporate climate risk disclosures. And 
you know, I think we all need a degree of humility on this journey as we learn, as we go, as we become, as Simon's described, you know, more expert at measuring emissions in the first place. And Simon gave some great examples there about drone technology, you know, replacing some uh, estimating techniques that would have been used in the past. So my, my reassurance to listeners is no company we work with, large or small, has got this fully taped. Everybody's on this journey. We're working with industrial players, food manufacturers, house builders, oil and gas companies. And, the, you know, every business we're working with is facing challenges with that fundamental starting point. How do I measure my baseline today on that scope one, two, three basis? And then what are the scenarios going forward, uh, given our plans for emissions reductions? And, you know, we've developed a new tool at KPMG called Climate IQ to help clients work through that. Um, but, you know, coming back to what the board should be doing, it should be saying, how credible is this transition plan? How robust does it add up? Does it align, as Simon was saying, with the strategy? And have we thought about our risks in a dynamic way, not in a static way? I do just want to bring this point out, dynamic risk assessment, i.e. thinking about the interrelationships between risks, because we live in an increasingly volatile and chaotic world. And it's actually working through that, that interplay between different risks that might be on the risk register that I think is really, really important for boards to be doing right now. Great. Some, some good advice there, Simon. Thank you. So maybe Simon Henry coming to you around what does good look like? Do you have any any examples when it comes to reporting uh, in terms of you know, uh, an approach which a company has taken in terms of their disclosures, um, which you think that that actually is is very clear and it works well? Well, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I do think Rio Tinto has been a leader and one or two of the other mining companies in making this linkage between business model, risk, actions and metrics and setting out uh, the cost of abatement, for example, which Rio Tinto does in quite some detail as to how many dollars per tonne of different actions uh, will, will be required to remove carbon from scope one, scope two, own emissions, uh, but also then looking at, and just as an example, uh, Rio's own scope one and two carbon footprint, 25 million tonnes. The scope three emissions by their customers when basically producing iron ore or aluminium, 500 million tonnes. So it's a factor of 20 bigger. So this forces some thinking about customers. Uh, and the disclosure that uh, is included by Rio Tinto, then I just flip back to the banking exercise, where actually the idea of helping customers reduce their emissions by switching their mode of transport that was being financed by the bank or the energy efficiency of the buildings actually created a lot of thinking about opportunities. And therefore, being able to disclose opportunity and how the bank could change or adapt its customer offers and to appeal to effectively very firm societal trends uh, was a potential disclosure then. There is some disclosure I, I'm aware of uh, in, in the UK retail banking sector that I think could, could lead to good practice as well. So the, the industries, the sectors that are at the leading edge 
I think, or the highest risk are showing some good practice. Interestingly, those with a consumer focus, so FMCG uh, companies or, or telecoms companies or retailers uh, are also getting good marks. Although the figures I've just used of 25, 500, 500 million tonnes, quite often their, their total emissions are 2 million tonnes. Um, so we also have to keep things in, in scale and think about the, the bigger picture uh, as well. Great. Simon Burley, same question to you. Any examples of good practice that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, I think Simon's right when he says, you know, we should look at the sectors that are, as it were, in the crosshairs right now. So the carbon intensive sectors. So, um, you know, one of my energy clients, SSE, for example, they produce a sustainability report every six months um, for the market uh, and they link their performance on sustainability to executive remuneration. And I think that that is another you know, trend we will see uh, much more of going forwards. Um, so I, there are good examples uh, out there. I think, you know, I, I come back to my point. I wouldn't say anybody's got to absolutely take check because everybody's on that journey. And, uh, you know, there's more work to be done um, across the patch. But I think it's good for our listeners to think about, you know, looking at those sectors that are most in the crosshairs right now. Uh, so that would be the energy sector, uh, some of the consumer goods sectors that Simon mentioned as well as areas to look or, you know, the companies that are being most affected. Great. So that's one of the um, in, uh, groups who are really encouraging, I think, more disclosure um, are the investors. And maybe, Simon Henry, one one for you. Um, be keen just to share any thoughts on, uh, I guess, your engagement with investors or investor associations. Certainly, I'm seeing a lot more activity in that space. And um, one of the areas that certainly they are, they are asking for is more details around assumptions. So even if someone disagrees with, with your assumptions, they've got the data to be able to apply their own assumptions um, to, to, to understand the climate risk impacts. But any observations on investor engagement? Uh, indeed, I think this will be a very important part of the future. And what has been good to see happening in the last year or two is the, the coming together of, of another set of alphabet soups where there is a more uh, coll collaborative approach from groups of investors and other interested stakeholders, uh, such as the Carbon Disclosure Project, CDP, uh, through to setting expectations at a sector level. So what you might expect from energy is quite different from what you might expect from consumer goods. Uh, and I think that coming together is very helpful because it, it, it just accelerates both the consistency, but also the, the quality of the, the discussion. Uh, the IIGCC, the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change is currently quite active in the UK. It includes groups like the Climate Action 100 and uh, many individual investors. And that, I see, is a, a positive move because it sets the framework for engagement about strategy risks, metrics, targets, whether these are acceptable, deliverable, what is the value implication, uh, and speaks in the, the language of investors. One thing it is picking up, interestingly, given we're a, a KPMG podcast, is financial disclosures to whether your actual financial results have taken into account 
the Im potential impact of climate change and in particular a, a one and a half degree scenario, uh, i.e. have you built in cost of carbon to your assumptions around asset values, fair market value? Have you thought about closure of assets? Have you thought about exposure of assets to climate related events, uh, customer trends, uh, goodwill valuation, intangibles? investment in technology to stay stay ahead so it it's asking all the right questions it's still an immature discussion though i will say that uh is, is is developing and i do think it will become different in different sectors and that's okay as long as it becomes consistent within those sectors because it will actually help frame the right discussion for boards and for executives Thank you. It, it's a great point. I'm glad you made that one, Simon. Certainly um, at KPMG, we're, we're asked by investors not only about disclosures in the front half of the accounts in terms of strategy, but around asset values and how is climate risk impacting asset values. And there are many different ways, as, as you have already highlighted, how, how that um, should be taken into account. And that consistency between the front half of the accounts and the back half of the accounts is, is absolutely absolutely critical. Um, now, it's been a fascinating discussion and um, we are running short of time. So I have a final question, I guess, for both of you and maybe starting with you, Simon Henry. Um, what would be the one or two questions you would advise board members to be asking of management to help address their climate risk commitments? I think it is, do you know what your carbon footprint actually is? Do you have a, a clear understanding of where it should be in a time horizon that is far enough out to, to, to not necessarily be covered by today's plans, but needs to be covered by strategy? And can you work backwards from that five to 10 year horizon to what I do need to do today? And I fully agree with all the previous discussion about companies should not be laggards they should not follow events. We should all be trying to be up with and potentially some of us to lead events uh, because left to devices outside the corporate sector, uh, we may not like the outcome. So businesses need to be part of setting the agenda and not just taking it. Brilliant advice. Thank you. Simon Verley, what would be your one or two questions for board members to be asking of management? Well, I fully agree with Simon's advice. Um, two additional points. Can we get ahead of this? So can we get ahead of this wave of new disclosure requirements and be really proactive in shaping, you know, the agenda over the next few years? I'd say that would be Rather than being buffeted by each wave of new requirements, let's try and get ahead of this. So can we do that? And then secondly, and to finish on a positive note, Michelle, would be, have we really thought about the opportunities in the low carbon economy for our business? And where are we going to play in the new value chains that are going to be created as we transition to net zero? Well, that's all we have time for in today's podcast. We've certainly covered a lot of ground. Simon Henry and Simon Verley, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. It's been great to hear your take on what is a very important topic. My key takeaways from what we've covered today are, firstly, COP26 really highlighted the urgency for action now. We can't wait until 2050 or even 2030. Secondly, business 
government and society need to work together if we're to be successful in tackling climate risks. And finally, companies really do need credible plans and concrete actions based on where they are today and where they need to be in the future. We have many more guests in future episodes who are passionate about good governance, so please do subscribe to our podcast to get alerted when new episodes are published. Thank you and goodbye for now.